0: Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at americanbrainfoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Neurellis a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at norellis.com.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is What's Health Got To Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. So we'll explore the condition, as well as efforts to help cure the disease with the CEO of Cure Epilepsy Foundation, Beth Lewin-Dean. Then, we'll speak with the mother of a patient with epilepsy. Later, we look at the little-known founder of modern nursing, Mary Seacole, a black Jamaican woman who gets scant attention in the United States. Author Helen Rappaport released a fascinating new biography of her, which examines her work and explains why we don't know her well here. But first, as you all know, I'm a practicing neurologist. I'm also a subspecialist with added expertise in seizures and epilepsy. And full disclosure here, the Epilepsy Foundation is one of this show's sponsors. As a reminder, seizures are a sudden electrical disturbance of the brain and the main symptom of epilepsy, a disease that causes repeated, unprovoked, and non-predictable seizures. I've been caring for patients with epilepsy for more than 30 years, and I believe I understand their play. I specialized in this condition because I was interested in brain science and I believed I could honestly help with the treatments that are currently available. I'm often asked what I've learned from my work with epilepsy patients. What amazes me the most about my patients with chronic seizures is their resilience. Every morning, they wake up not knowing if they'll have a seizure that day, but they soldier on, which often leaves them feeling very present in the moment. That's despite the myths that surround epilepsy and the resulting stigma. At this point, you may be thinking, well, that's great, Dr. Joe but I don't know anybody with epilepsy, so why should I care? There are several reasons. First and foremost, it's incredibly common, impacting one out of every 26 patients, and it affects adults just as much as kids. Anyone can get epilepsy, including celebrities, from Supreme Court Justice John Roberts to the late rock star Prince and countless others. Second, treatments that are FDA-approved for seizures and epilepsy are often studied later to see if they help other very common similar conditions like migraine headaches, pain, and depression, as well as other mental health issues. Put another way, epilepsy is the gateway to the treatment of several other neurological problems that are caused by abnormal brain activity. To help us understand where we are in the fight against epilepsy, Beth Lewin dean CEO of Cure Epilepsy, joins us from Chicago. Beth, welcome to our program.
2: Thank you so much for having me today.
1: It is wonderful to have you here. I know I've set the stage with some descriptions, uh, but I am w- kind of want to get into the, to the weeds if I can. What is epilepsy uh, the way you see it?
2: It's exactly the way you characterized it. It's a neurological disorder where the brain's more susceptible to having recurrent seizures. Um, It's incredibly common, more common than most people realize. Uh, But if someone has uh, been diagnosed with two or more unprovoked seizures or has had a seizure and has a high likelihood of having another one, they're said to have epilepsy.
1: When it comes to seizures, everyone has their own picture, if you will, of what that looks like, especially when I use that word. Could you help paint the picture of what are seizures for the listeners out there that may simply not know what we mean?
2: Sure. So seizures are, um, it's a burst of uncontrolled electrical activity in the brain Right. So a group of seizures gets a little excited, a little hyperactive, um, and they kind of tell their neighbors and they all start to dance together. And when they hit a a critical point, a seizure occurs. Um, Seizures can look like many, many different things. I think most people picture kind of the what used to be called grand mal or tonic clonic seizure of somebody falling to the floor and convulsing, but they can be much more subtle. There are many flavors of seizures. It can be an um, eye fluttering or uh, twitching of an arm or fingers. It can be what people do see, the, the falling down and shaking, or it could be a staring spell. And so seizures are really a wide variety of things, um, you know, and, and they're, they're specific to the person with epilepsy.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the condition or disease of epilepsy. I mentioned the number of how common it is, but can you give us a better sense of how common is this? Is this rare?
2: No, it's it's not rare at all. Uh, in fact, it's the fourth most common neurological disease behind uh, migraine, stroke, and Alzheimer's. So it's very common. There are about 3.4 million Americans who live with epilepsy, about 65 million people in the world, and that comes out to be about 1 in 26 people will experience epilepsy during their lifetime, or 1 in 150 children. So it's, it's really very common. Um, people just don't realize how common it is, and they likely know somebody who has epilepsy and may not even realize it.
1: So who are these 3.4 million people? Who's who exactly is getting this condition?
2: Anyone, anyone can get epilepsy. Um, it happens for a variety of reasons, uh, which we can talk about later. But it is most common, or the incidence is highest, in childhood, and then um, as we get older, or what we call late onset epilepsy. So it kind of has these two peaks, but it can happen to anybody at any time.
1: I know you mentioned in your description of seizures, it's this electrical outburst, if you will. But are those electrical outbursts, these seizures, bad for a person? What what happens?
2: You know, there's a there's a lot of um, discussion around this, but I think generally it's understood that that seizures are are bad for your brain. Um, they cause negative changes in brain function, possibly the loss of brain cells. And prolonged seizures, we know, injure the brain. Um, so so we do our best, or I should say uh, epileptologists like yourself and neurologists do their best to help people control their seizures so that we can curtail um, longer-term impacts to, um, you know, behavior and, and cognitive uh, performance.
1: Can you die from a seizure? Can you die from epilepsy?
2: You can. You can die from a seizure and from epilepsy. Um, In fact, people with epilepsy are three times more likely than the general population um, to die prematurely. And and there are a couple of causes for that. I think first and foremost, um, people with epilepsy are at risk because of, of accidents and injury and drowning. And so if they have a seizure and these things occur, um they're at higher risk and they can they can die prematurely the other thing that goes on is a phenomenon called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy or sudep Um, and this refers to the death of somebody from epilepsy or somebody with epilepsy that's not from injury or drowning or other known causes and you know we're studying this um, as a community and in fact cure epilepsy is one of the um, organizations that really initiated research in this area to understand what occurs but what we think happens is that someone has a seizure and it causes an interruption to their breathing um as well as possibly a dangerous heart rhythm or cardiac arrest and so the person stops breathing at the end of the seizure and they don't start again and so they pass um and and again we're studying this we're learning more um, right now, the, the estimates are that one in a thousand people with epilepsy die from SUDEP a year, but we actually think it's probably more than that because it's underreported. Um, but this is a phenomenon that, that again, we're studying. It's it's important for us to um, educate on, and we at least now better understand risk factors so we can help people mitigate their risk to, to dying from SUDEP.
1: Besides the seizures, are there other symptoms that are part of epilepsy?
2: So this, there are the seizures, um, and there are more subtle things that go on. Um, people describe it as an aura or deja vu. They may smell or taste something or have a tingling. Um, these are often things that precede seizures, but sometimes they occur on their own. And, um, while they're not the seizures that people typically picture, they are, in fact, a, a type of seizure called focal, focal aware. So people know this is happening. They, they have these sensations, um, but they don't look like the seizure that people typically expect. Let me
1: ask one more question on about seizures themselves. If someone witnesses a seizure, and and some types are very dramatic, Uh, What's the best advice for a listener in terms of intervening or what they should do if they witness it?
2: Sure. There are some great programs that are available from the Epilepsy Foundation and the Epilepsy Alliance of America that help people get trained on seizure safety. Um, But they essentially um, kind of walk you through what you should do, and and that is to make sure that the person is safe. So help them to the ground, make sure they're on their side, Um, loosen anything that's restricting that could cause them to have problems with their breathing, Um, you know, put something soft underneath their head, do not stick anything in their mouth, they're not going to um, choke or swallow their tongue. And time the seizure. Those are the, probably the key things you want to do, but I would highly recommend that people um, go through the seizure safety training. It's, it's a great free tool um, to educate yourself and prepare. Should you come across somebody who's having a seizure?
1: Let's get into the issue of treatment. Are there treatments and seizures? Are there cures for seizures?
2: Yes. So, um, The seizures are a a symptom of epilepsy, right? And there are over 40 medications that are approved to treat seizures. Um, The unfortunate part is, or I guess maybe the fortunate part is two thirds of people with epilepsy can take these treatments and they will reduce or eliminate their seizures so they they can live their daily lives. But for one-third of the people, um, despite these medications being available, they are not able to control their seizures. They're called intractable. And for these folks, they will explore other opportunity or other um, options to help get control of their seizures. It could be using devices such as a vagal nerve stimulator or deep brain stimulation. Um, Some people, depending on the type of seizure they have and where it originates, will be eligible for epilepsy surgery, where they can um, remove the part of the brain that's causing the seizures. So there are are different things available um, to help control the seizures. What we don't have yet is anything that is disease-modifying, something that will prevent epilepsy from starting Or if somebody has it, essentially reverse or stop it. Um, So that's kind of the holy grail that we're working on.
1: And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. And if you're just joining us, we're talking about curing epilepsy. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Beth, does the NIH and government fund epilepsy research?
2: Yes, the NIH, or more specifically, um, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke um, are a large funder of epilepsy research. And they're critical to advancing our understanding of epilepsy. And they're a very collaborative partner within the epilepsy community. I think in 2022, NINs will fund about $212 million on epilepsy research, which is fantastic. Yeah.
1: What about CURE? Let Give us a, a sense to our listeners who may not be aware of CURE Epilepsy. Tell us a little bit about that organization.
2: Sure. So CURE Epilepsy is the leading non-governmental agency fully committed to funding epilepsy research. It is, it is our mission. It is what we do. And we were founded back in 1998, so just about 25 years ago, by Susan Axelrod and a small group of mothers uh, of children with epilepsy who were really frustrated with their inability to protect their children from seizures. They decided that living um, well with epilepsy was not good enough. And so um, with this mission of, you know, finding a cure for epilepsy, it meant that um, they needed to create an organization that would both fund epilepsy research and also attract researchers into the epilepsy community. And so, um, like I mentioned, this is our coming upon our 25th anniversary. We've raised over $90 million and we have funded over 280 research grants in 17 countries worldwide. Again, with, with our focus on finding a cure for epilepsy.
1: So that is amazing in terms of the amount of funding and hearing those successes. My question is, how, have that, how has that translated into actual successes? Have there been successes in epilepsy treatments or diagnoses?
2: So I, I think um, we're playing the long game. Uh, and, and so this is going to take time. There's a lot that we still don't understand about epilepsy. We fund research in six priority areas uh, that that we think are critical to advancing our understanding. So we fund pediatric epilepsy research, genetic epilepsy research, acquired epilepsy, intractable or pharmacoresistant epilepsy. We fund research in SUDEP and we fund research in sleep and epilepsy. And by focusing on these areas, What we do, the role we kind of play is to fund novel or maybe even riskier ideas in science that aren't maybe ready or strong enough to get funding from the NIH. We give out grants to get these researchers going, to get some data and some proof um, so that they can then advance, go to the NIH, get larger grants and move things forward. And what we've seen over 25 years is we've got a great track record of um, identifying researchers with with novel ideas, getting them their initial funding, and then they go on and get larger grants. They build their own um, independent laboratories at academic institutions. They train additional researchers and they drive the science forward. So that's where we've really had success is... um, is providing almost seed funding, right. To get things going, sure. to get people more money in advance, uh, advance the science.
1: Beth, given how common epilepsy is, there are a lot of myths about epilepsy, like it's contagious or that people with seizures just can't function in life. Uh, why do you think those myths still exist?
2: That is a fascinating question. Um, we think about that a lot. Uh, And I think there's several factors at play. First and foremost, I I think the general public really doesn't know much about epilepsy. Um, And if they do, they generally picture somebody kind of falling to the ground and convulsing um, with that tonic-clonic or what used to be called a grand mal seizure. Uh, And some of this may even have its roots back to, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago when people thought that people with epilepsy were possessed or they were mad, they were institutionalized. There's just a whole history of misunderstanding. Um, And because of that, and because people don't talk about their epilepsy, there's just a lot of misconceptions and misperceptions. Um, And I think, you know, as a community, we work hard, but we really need to get epilepsy out of the shadows and it needs to have a voice. We've seen in, in other uh, disorders such as autism that it it is possible to change people's perceptions and eliminate stigma, um, but it takes education, it takes awareness, it takes conversations. And having a public face or a public voice, somebody high profile who's out there and speaking about their epilepsy can often go a long way to, to help drive those conversations.
1: Beth, uh, in our final moments here, How can people find out more about Cure Epilepsy or about epilepsy overall, especially during November Epilepsy Awareness Month?
2: I am so glad you asked. So uh, first and foremost, our website has a wealth of information. So it's www.cureepilepsy.org. And you can follow us on all of the social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and now even TikTok. Uh, We have a lot of educational resources available to help people um, either start to learn or come up the learning curve about epilepsy, as well as, um, you know, information, webinars, very technical things for people who are a little more savvy. We try to meet people where they're at. And so if you are a science wonk and you want to hear about the most innovative research that's going on, the newest treatments. We do have these webinars and emails that give you lots of information. And if you're somebody who maybe didn't love biology in high school, we have much more comfortable ways to learn about it. We have some understanding epilepsy modules on the website, and we do this wonderful podcast called Seizing Life, which talks about epilepsy and the science um, in a very comfortable way around a kitchen table.
1: I love it. Keep up the exceptional work. Beth, I want to thank you so much uh, for sharing all of this terrific information with us and for all that you're doing on behalf of individuals uh, with epilepsy and their families. Thank you. appreciate it.
2: And thank you for shining a light on it, especially during uh, November and Epilepsy Awareness Month.
1: Absolutely. We've been talking to Beth Lewin dean She is CEO of Cure Epilepsy. In addition to Epilepsy Awareness Month, November is also National Caregivers Month. We're joined now by Nora Hennessy, whose daughter suffers from epilepsy and helps to give us a human face of what we just heard about in our first segment. Nora, welcome to our show.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: It is great to have you here. Tell us your story with epilepsy.
3: Sure, well, my story with epilepsy is really my daughter Catherine's story. Um, Catherine was born in Chicago in 2017 and everything was really seamless. My pregnancy went off without a hitch and at a few weeks old, Catherine was already smiling. Um, Fast forward when Catherine was about 20 months old, I noticed her head nodded forward after her nap and it happened a couple of times. It was so fast that it was almost imperceptible. I didn't think a lot of it at the time, um, but like any mom would, I, I started investigating and I reached out to her daycare and some other folks who had cared for her and they told me they'd noticed it too. So. At that point, I was a little concerned. I took a video and I I sent it to her pediatrician. Uh, She also wasn't too concerned because Catherine was a healthy kid and had been meeting all of her milestones. But uh, nonetheless, our pediatrician sent us for an EEG at Lurie Children's Hospital just to rule out epilepsy. And that was in June 2020. And we didn't leave the hospital for at least a week. So, long story short, you know, life changed overnight when Catherine was diagnosed with epilepsy. Um, I started sleeping with her. She had a whole slate of tests and hospital stays. No one could really identify the cause of her seizures. And her seizure onset, can only really be described as explosive. Um, once they started, there were days when she had 200 seizures. Did, she had that right? wear, Did I
1: hear you right? 200?
3: Correct. She had 200 seizures. She had to wear a helmet because they often knocked her over. Um, and her development just stopped. So Catherine has a type of epilepsy called epileptic spasms. And they essentially have been refractory to treatment, meaning despite multiple kinds of treatments from special diets to medicines to even brain surgeries, she continues to have seizures.
1: How difficult was it getting a diagnosis? It sounds like here you were in the hospital for a week. Did it take much longer after that to finally say, this is what Catherine has?
3: No, honestly, it wasn't difficult at all to get the diagnosis. Um, You know, as soon as we were admitted to the hospital, uh, we were told she had epilepsy. Um, I think the specific type of epilepsy was a little hard to pinpoint early on, because there was really no clear cut cause. Um, You know, there were a it was sort of up in the air whether she had infantile spasms or myoclonic atastic epilepsy. Infantile, you're the you're the expert here. Um right. but infantile right. spasms typically present in the first year of life, not always, but Catherine was almost two when her seizures started. I see. So um, you know, we didn't know what caused them at the time or. You know what precipitated them now? You know, three years into this journey, we do know what caused Catherine's seizures. Um, it's something called cortical dysplasia, Yes, yes. Um, and for any listeners who don't know what that is, it's sort of like a lesion or tumor, as I understand it, in the brain that sort of disrupts the function of the electrical network in the brain that Beth described.
1: So it sounds like they went down the road of medications, brain surgery. Uh, I guess my question after hearing all of that, how is Catherine now? Uh, What's the prognosis for the future?
3: Well, to be honest, Catherine is doing fantastic right now. You know, in in many ways, she's a typical five-year-old. She plays, she's curious, she's learning new things. She goes to school. Um, she's a happy child. And I think when most people meet Catherine, they probably wouldn't have any idea what she's been through. But all that being said, her seizures are intractable. So she continues to have some minor seizures some mornings. Um, She continues to take epilepsy medicine and eat a ketogenic diet, which is a high fat diet. Um, And, you know, she has some developmental delays because her seizures started at such a critical time in her brain development, um, that, you know, those, those, that will impact Catherine's, you know, abilities going sure. forward.
1: It's, uh, it's such a hard journey listening to the way you're describing, um, uh, how this has affected all of you all, the family and Catherine, what do you think has been the biggest Barrier that you and your family have faced or continue to face when it comes to dealing with epilepsy?
3: Sure. That's such a great question. Um, I don't know if it's a barrier, but I would say my biggest concern as a parent of a child with epilepsy is health insurance. So I'm a single parent, I'm the single income earner in my family. And really, since this epilepsy journey journey started, um, I've been held hostage to my health insurance in some ways. And when I was working full time in my last role, um, I worked at an organization that was under fifty employees and didn't have acts, you know, didn't offer sure. FMLA, wasn't required to by law. So I continued to work while navigating hospital stays and making keto meals um, and really just trying to take care of my daughter. So having really exceptional health care is of great importance to me. And that lack of FMLA was really a barrier for me. And, and it is for millions of American families who find themselves you know, perhaps unexpectedly caregiving for family or friends. So I think we all have to do better and create a system that provides quality health care for all people and and provides working individuals the opportunity to care for their loved ones. God forbid they receive a diagnosis like epilepsy.
1: I could not agree with you more, uh, and you said it uh, so eloquently. To our listeners, if they're undergoing a similar journey, if someone out there is very much identifying with you, whether it's epilepsy or maybe it's some other condition to which they have to become the caregiver or they have new onset seizures, what, what message do you
3: have for them? That's a great question. I I think I could write a book at this point. (laughs) Um, But I think I would advise them to trust their instincts. I think a parent knows his or her child best. And I would encourage anyone who's caring for someone with epilepsy or another condition to find a team that they trust, even if it means getting multiple opinions. And then once they find that team, of doctors, nurses, therapists, whomever is on that team, really put their faith in that team and be an active advocate and participant in the treatment. Um, I think doctors are eager to help and it's really important to have the parent perspective. And then I think most importantly, I would say know that you're not alone. Um, As Beth said earlier, there are so many people in the epilepsy community, and I would encourage anyone to find them on social media, ask their doctor to connect them with other families. This journey is really unique, and no one can go it alone. I think we're stronger together in community.
1: Nora, I can only wish you... And your daughter, Catherine, the very best. Uh, may they find a cure and a way uh, to have her have a wonderful life. I'm just happy that you were kind enough to give us your time and to share your story with us. I know it'll help so many others.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: We've been talking to Nora Hennessy. She is mother of a daughter with epilepsy and she shared her story with us regarding her daughter's diagnosis of epilepsy and their journey. Up next, Helen Rappaport joins us from the United Kingdom to introduce us to the little-known founder of modern nursing, Mary Sequel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servant, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It. When it comes to the healthcare team, there is one important truth. Without nurses, there is no healthcare. Period. End of story. Yet, if you ask people to name some famous nurses from history, like I did recently, the responses are typically Florence Nightingale and Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross. And some may also offer Dorothea Dix, creator of mental health nursing. However, no one, I asked, could identify the subject of our next interview, Mary Seacole, a black Jamaican nurse who was a contemporary of Florence Nightingale and in most respects contributed just as much to modern nursing as she did. Our next guest, Helen Rappaport, joins us to explain why Mary Seacole should also be remembered for her contributions to nursing and for her remarkable life. She is the author of a new biography entitled In Search of Mary Seacole The Making of a Black Cultural Icon and Humanitarian. The book is a New York Times editor pick, and she joins us from the United Kingdom. Helen, welcome to our show.
4: Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me.
1: It is a true honor and pleasure, and I'm going to get right to it. Helen, to many of my listeners, they they really don't know who Mary Seacole is. So, who exactly is Mary Seacole, and why should we know about her?
4: Well, Mary Seacole really sprang to the foreground here in the UK in the early 2000s. But uh, people in in feminist and historical circles knew about her before that time. But she really came to the foreground when she was voted the greatest black Briton because technically, of course, she was a British subject. She was born out in Jamaica in 1805 and was very much um, uh, the product of a wonderful Jamaican, if not West Indian, tradition of healing and holistic care um, that grew up uh, around the time of when the first enslaved people were brought to the plantations there. You had a whole group of women. women of color and black women in Jamaica, who, who became what were known as doctresses. And these were the women who cared for the many enslaved people who fell terribly sick on the, in the humid, hot, humid conditions of Jamaica. And they were nursed in what were called hothouses on the plantations. And it was these Jamaican women, these doctresses, like Mary and her mother before her, who developed nursing and pharmaceutical skills drawing on the natural pharmacopoeia of the island so they 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 didn't particularly favor using the sort of heavy doses of opiates and laudanum and the the conventional treatments allopathic medicine offered they favored drawing on more holistic methods and it was that that mary used to such um, with such success in treating cholera victims, for example.
1: Interesting. So, so it gets me to wondering. Uh, your book is amazing. In it's just so meticulously researched. What led you to pursue this subject for a biography? What What was your journey to her?
4: Well, it was one of stubborn determination to get to the truth. The trouble with a lot of history of Black people and people of colour from the early 19th century and before, is that the documentary record is very insubstantial. Often it's just missing that there isn't the evidence. And when I first... Discovered Mary Seacole and her extraordinary role during the Crimean War of 1854 to 5. There was something about her wonderfully determined um, character, her personality, that I wanted to explore. But I very quickly found that in her case, there were huge gaps in the record. And because of that, I became incredibly determined and, and really stubborn about digging and digging and digging. Until I got to the truth. But in the case of Mary, there are still gaps that I couldn't fill in. But I was determined to give people as much of her story as could be found because it took an awful lot of winkling out.
1: I'm curious, as I mentioned in the introduction, for someone uh, with such an important historical contribution uh, to nursing most of us, especially in the medical profession, have never heard of her. So why do you think we don't know about her in the United States as opposed to where you are in the United Kingdom?
4: Well, the problem is, first and foremost, that Mary was not a nurse in the actual trained sense of the word, because women's nursing, certainly in Britain, didn't come in until after the Crimean War, when Florence Nightingale established formal training for women as a profession in 1860 at St. Thomas's Hospital where she was based. Mary came of a quite different nursing, nurse practitioner kind of, uh, uh, of style of nursing that was more to do with showing love and empathy and care of the individual and that didn't involve any kind of formal training. So because of that, Florence Nightingale, as I said at the beginning, she totally dominated the history of women's nursing until really Mary Seacole was discovered in around the 1980s, 90s in Britain. But you cannot, the, 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 the thing that I constantly came up against in, in researching Mary is this compulsion people find that they must compare Mary Seacole with Florence Nightingale and they were two very different women who operated in entirely different spheres who had in many ways completely different methodology or principles of nursing. I mean Florence Nightingale formalised nursing. She wrote learned books about it. She set up women's training um, as nurses. Mary didn't do any of that. She was a very empathic personality who Really, more, more than anything, was just someone who was a caregiver in the much broader sense of nursing.
1: That's so fascinating. Uh, one of the things that, that really took me to really think about her that impressed me is that how did a woman of color manage to accomplish so much at a time of rampant discrimita- uh, discrimination? Uh, I mean, slavery was still going on in the mid-1800s at her time. How did she manage to pull that off?
4: Well, she she was born free, and her mother had been given her freedom at some point. Um, really, it, it's down fundamentally to Mary's absolute refusal ever to take no for an answer. Because when she was a young woman in Kingston, she helped her mother run a boarding house. And a lot of the the British um, army who are based out in Jamaica on the West India Station, They used to fall sick, mainly with cholera or enteric disease, dysentery, typhoid, yellow fever, felled a lot of them. And when they were sick, if they were officers, they could go and stay at these lodging houses in Kingston, which were run. Many of them were run by women with with these doctressing skills. And they they treated them as kind of convalescent hospitals. And it was through working in, 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 in that situation that Mary got to know Um, many British military and naval personalities. And when she heard later in 1854 that a war had broken out between Britain, France and Russia, uh, she didn't know at that point where it was going to be located, that it was going to be in Crimea. But her first instinct was always to serve her sons of the British Army. She referred to them as her sons because she was inherently deeply, deeply patriotic. She was um, a British subject, of course, coming from Jamaica. So her instinct was always to serve queen and country, and nothing was going to stop her. And she went through all the official channels. She tried to be taken on by the official recruiters for Nightingale's nurses who were going out. She went to the war office and the quartermaster's office and offered her services. Everyone turned her down and they also turned down at least two other black nurses from the West Indies that we know of who also volunteered. So Mary, never one to take no for an answer, said, right, I'm going to fund my own trip. I'm going to go out to Crimea and offer my services because, of course, she had another string to her bow. She wasn't just a caregiver and a holistic practitioner and a nurse, she was also a woman of business, and she went out to set up shop, to run a canteen and a general store, again, to serve the army and help people out.
1: One of the uh, fascinating nuggets in this book uh, has to do with, with Florence Nightingale, uh, I have to admit, uh, I was uh, I was reading passages between my wife and I, and uh, Florence Nightingale, who we envisioned as a certain type of archetype in our mind, uh, a very, as she said, a learned uh, individual who wrote books on nursing, she comes off somewhat petty and vindictive uh, in this book. Uh, I, 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 the the nugget about innuendo and gossiping about Mary Seacole to Queen Victoria so she wouldn't be invited to tea uh, or yeah. turning down her offer. I, I have to admit, we, we sat there, I go, really? This <laughs> uh, can, can you comment on that
4: part? Well, this is the difficulty with Florence Nightingale. Well, first of all, I must say, and I think I say it in the book, that Mary Never, ever had anything but respect and admiration for Florence. But Florence was the face of official army nursing. Mary didn't want to be straightjacketed by officialdom and to have to do things Florence Nightingale's way. She had a very rigid regime at Scutari Hospital where she ran the operate, you know, the whole operation of the medical um, British nursing services during the war. Mary was a freewheeler, a maverick who always wanted to do things in her own way. And, you know, within her own very specialised skills, Florence's basic problems with Mary were firstly, I suspect, racist to a degree. Uh, And that was just endemic at the time everywhere. Uh, amongst um, you know white people you know universally one could say Um, but there were other issues that also disturbed Florence Nightingale about Mary and one of the fundamental ones that she so disapproved of was that when Mary went to Crimea she set up um, a store and a canteen for the soldiers there and she sold alcohol. Now for Florence Nightingale and very rightly so Alcohol was anathema because she had seen what alcoholism did to men of the British Army. It was a dreadful problem, alcoholism, amongst the troops. And she really disapproved of Mary selling alcohol. But she had other moral reasons, too, about Mary's very irregular background, you know, and the fact that as far as we know, and I tried hard to prove it, she had an illegitimate daughter who she took with her to Crimea. Now that was beyond the pale for Florence Nightingale. It's one of the reasons why I think she never really pushed Mary's uh, formal acceptance by, say, Queen Victoria.
1: I understand. Helen, you know, so much about Mary Seacole really reverberates in our times now. So what does someone like Mary Seacole have to teach us in our current age about the issue of race in nursing
4: well the thing with mary is is what is so extraordinary about her race and her color is that of all the people who wrote um about her who met her in crimea and who you know encountered her many many generous acts of care and nursing and compassion is really for 90 percent of them her race was never mentioned You know, they they found her far too endearing and warm and compassionate. She was such a generous spirited mother mother figure out there that Mary's sense of, uh, you know, Mary's colour and her background really, really did not come into it. But of course, in official channels, she had been rejected because of her color. But I think what is so wonderful about Mary and her exploits during that war, and at other times, is how her wonderful compassion and humanity transcends everything. It transcends color, race, creed, whatever limitations you care to put on it. Nothing would ever have stopped Mary from caring for someone in need, Whatever the color of their
1: skin, Helen, I'm gonna let that be our last word. Uh, I could spend so so many more minutes, uh, hours, if uh, after reading this fantastic book with you. But I I really appreciate you joining us today and telling us about such an important historical figure. I know our listeners will be fascinated, uh, and I just uh, thank you for your time and and your beautiful work on this book
4: well thank you and I hope people enjoy reading it because Mary is a multi-dimensional personality there is so much to admire about her and she's lived in my head for 20 years now and she'll never leave it either I feel like she has been a long long long-term companion to me
1: I, I she's very lucky uh individual in that regard and, and Helen uh thank you again. We've been talking to Helen Rappaport. She is the author of the amazing new biography In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Black Cultural Icon and Humanitarian. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Silva is our director. Gary Autry is our intern. Next week's program is our special Thanksgiving Day show which will focus on the health benefits of gratitude. You don't want to miss it. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at JServin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 899 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening and stay in touch.
0: Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find
3: cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.